Hello and welcome to the brand new educational podcast, The Teachers of Tomorrow. With The Teachers of Tomorrow. With your co-host, Mr. Aldring, otherwise known as Matt. And Mr. Gregory, also known as Sam. And we are here to share our journey, experiences and views on all things education. Hi guys and welcome to this latest podcast episode where today we've got a really exciting discussion with Professor Jonathan Glazard uh, where today we'll be discussing the topic of teacher well-being in particular, uh, mental health. Now this follows on from the first episode of the mini-series um, around teacher well-being and first of all you know Jonathan thanks for taking the time uh, to take the interview of us. I know you're incredibly busy at the moment so I know us and the listeners are extremely excited to to get involved with this one so first of all thanks for coming um and thanks for taking the time if you want to get in touch with either ourselves or jonathan after the, the discussion then jonathan's twitter handle is at j underscore glazard equally if you want to get in touch with us on instagram it's at the teachers of tomorrow or on twitter as well at tft pod sam over to you my friend well just like i say really really appreciate the fact that you've joined us for this for this episode both me and Matt have been really excited about it and like Matt said we really really appreciate the time that you've given us in that you've been down uh, in government advising them as well which we'll hopefully be able to touch on a little bit later for our viewers who are or viewers or listeners who are going to listen hopefully this episode if you're not aware who, who Jonathan is uh, he's a current professor in of inclusive educa- education he's a director of the center for LGBTQ plus inclusion in education and he's a principal researcher in the Carnegie Centre of Way Works of Excellence for Mental Health in Schools. Furthermore to this, back in 2015, uh, he was awarded uh, the National Teacher uh, Teaching Fellow status by the Higher Education Academy, which I think I'm right in thinking that you are now a principal fellow for. I was just wondering quickly if you could just elaborate a little bit more on that award and what your role is uh, as principal. So, yeah, okay, Sam. So the National Teaching Fellow is is a prestigious award um, that's awarded by the Higher Education um, Academy to, I guess, um, it's a very competitive award um, and it has to be supported by the institution. So it's basically, um, you have to demonstrate evidence of a national national impact on, on teaching and learning in higher education and you have to demonstrate evidence of teaching excellence in higher education on kind of on a national scale. So I was awarded that back in 2015. Um, The Principal Fellowship of the HEA is something different. So the National Teaching Fellow sits outside of that, but the Principal Fellow fellow of the HEA is basically um, evidence of a strategic commitment to learning and teaching in higher education. So it's about influencing policies and practices um, around teaching, learning and assessment within my own institution. But, and again, that's that's a prestigious award. It's difficult to achieve um, because you have to be in a position where you can actually influence institutional-wide policies um, around teaching, learning and assessment. So you've got to be in the right role, really, to be able to do that. No, yeah. honestly, I'm really grateful for you elaborating on that. And yeah, really, really fascinating and interesting. And Obviously, touching on the fact that you've obviously stepped into research, um, just so you guys are aware as well, Jonathan is actually a qualified teacher and he, w- he was an assistant head before he stepped into research, essentially. So, and since you've gone into research, Jonathan has also published 40 books, which is madness. Like, madness. And, yeah. How have yeah. you got the time? How, where's yeah, the time like, I, think, I think it's a bit mad as well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so, what, so on that note then, what what made you want to transition from being an assistant head? Because obviously that, that's very high up within education. 
why, why did you want to make the transition in, in, into research? So I was a teacher for 10 years. Um, I worked in Barnsley and I absolutely loved it. And I never, I never thought I would leave um, schools really. And then I wanted to kind of make a difference on a, on a wider scale. So I'd been teaching for 10 years. I was seeking another opportunity, but I didn't, I'd become an assistant head, but I decided that I didn't really want to go through the normal route of becoming a deputy and then becoming a head. Um, and I was looking for other opportunities that would enable me to impact on education on a wider scale. So I thought, well, teach training is probably the way to go. So um, I started to look for opportunities in teach training. And that's when I went to Huddersfield and um, started leading the primary education courses. Just on that note, note then, because obviously, I mean, you've said it that you've wanted to make a, a difference on, on a wider scale. Obviously, through your research, I think it's safe to say that you, you probably have compared to if you just stayed in a primary school. But do you feel from being in a research position and being in a primary school position as an assistant head, were the impacts you were making, were they different to each other? They are different because because when you work in teacher education, um, which is what I do now, so I train I train teachers. I work on the on the BA primary education course and the PGCE primary education course. Obviously, working I've worked with hundreds of hundreds of trainee teachers now over, over the last fifteen years. So then the, the impact is different because it's about teacher development and supporting um, trainee teachers to to be the best teachers they can be. So rather than having an impact on a class, it's having an impact on all, all of those teachers and, and all of those careers, really. And, and then indirectly, that has the impact on the children they're working with. So, yeah, so I think my, my influence really is about instilling values of inclusive education. So when I worked in schools, I was a SENCO. Um, and that's where my interest in inclusion came from. So I coordinated the special educational needs provision. I worked in a school that had lots of children with autism. We had resource provision for children with autism. I then um, decided to develop my interest further. So um, eventually I, I did a master's degree focusing on inclusion. It focused on dyslexia, actually. And then once I'd, once I'd done my master's degree, I'd got the interest in research and that's when I decided then to go on and do my doctorate. I was doing my doctorate whilst I was still teaching in school. So before I even transitioned into, into university, so I was doing a part-time doctorate um, and being, being a class teacher um, at the same time. So writing 40 books then seems pretty easy then. That, then. <laughs> I was going to say, time management must be unbelievable, honestly. Yeah, so I just, so I just um, really, I think my interest in inclusion comes from, from being a special needs coordinator and, you know, really championing, I guess, mar you know, children who are marginalised. I've always been interested in, you know, supporting those children who, are, who sit on the margins and, you know, children with special needs, children with behavioural needs, etc. And, you know, these are often the children who do get marginalised by the system. Mm -hmm. um, often the education system doesn't meet their needs. And, and often they get blamed, you know, for the, for the difficulties they have when actually it's the system that's actually failing them. So I went on and did my master's. I then carried on and did my doctorate. And then I, and then I transitioned into teacher training. And that's when I became more interested in teacher development. I think it's it's good that you've touched on that because, like you say, you, 
as any teacher, we we all want to make an impact. But obviously, originally you've started with you know, but just being in school, and and then from your experiences being in school, you've kind of you've wanted to do more and and go into that teacher development sort of teacher training side of things. You've recognised yeah. that like you you can impact teachers similar to me and Sam, as well as a lot of people that are that are listening now. Yeah. Teachers like us, you know, who who learn from you and learn from these sort of conversations and your experiences and research, um, and then moving forward, like we can hopefully put that into our own classroom practices which again hopefully yeah. has more of a wider impact rather than just the 30 30 kids or 100 kids you have you know in, in yeah and it's in interesting class. over the over the years I've been teaching so I've been teaching 25 years um, and it's interesting how the the roles have actually changed over that time in school so so when I became a teacher in the 19 in the mid 1990s it was very you know very traditional so you became a class teacher and then if you want a promotion, you then became, you know, a deputy, then you became a head, etc. And now I think with the growth of things like multi-academy trust, there's there's a lot more sort of interest in diverse roles and routes that you can now take. So, you know, you can now actually, you know, you see jobs advertised that are now leading a subject, um, you know, across a multi-academy trust. So you might be taking you know, English and, and leading that across the trust. So, so you're then responsible for standards within, within that subject, but also teacher development within that subject. And, you know, you see that for roles like maths or behaviour or teaching and learning across a trust. Um, and I think that just makes it more interesting now because there's lots of, there's lots of opportunities in teaching that didn't necessarily exist when, when I qualified, you know, and I think, some people just get to the point of wanting a new challenge within teaching. So it's not that you're bored with teaching a class. It's just that you want to do something different for some people teaching, teaching a class of children, five lessons a day, five days a week, isn't what they want to do for 40 years. They want different challenges within, within their career. So it's great now that we're now seeing lots of diverse roles within education. And, you know, the message I would, I would say to any, trainee teacher is don't think that just because you've done a primary course that that's what you're fixed with for the rest of your career you could move into further education you could move into secondary education you could move into higher education once you've got QTS you can teach any age group and often trainee teachers don't realize that they think that they they they're stuck with the phase they've trained in yeah I, 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 I didn't know that I, I thought that what, what you trained for like the primary education I thought well, wow. thank you. No, yeah. so, so like, for example, one of my one of my trainee teachers uh, this year, actually, who's just completed the BA primary education course, so he's done three years primary. He's now teaching in secondary. Um, so he saw a job that was actually coordinating and leading mental health across the secondary school, and because actually he'd focused on inclusion as his specialism and was really passionate about mental health, he saw that job thought wow that looks like a really interesting job and we go for that and he got the job oh wow so you know you're not you're not fixed with the phase that you actually choose and you know i know lots of primary school teachers who've moved into secondary and the other way around secondary moved into primary um i think it just keeps you interested and um keeps you lots of um lots of different irons in the fire really yeah definitely and it it, you mentioned there what you've discussed about having different roles in education is something that i know personally even from my sort of experience over the last two years of doing um the accelerated degree that focusing on the different the wider issues of education it's, it's kind of made me think sort of down the line where i want to be going do i want to be just teaching the classroom for the next place say 20 30 years whereas now I'm, I'm thinking more down the policy line of things you know 
going mm. forward after five, 10 years, mm. looking mm. at masters, similar sort of thing as you. And again, it's just, it's just an example of me maybe being a bit naive when I'm going into my teacher education about, oh, I'm going to be a teacher forever. Now that's it. But actually mm. you don't realize sort of how many diverse routes you could take. Mm. Mm. Um, and I actually think also that, that, you know, years ago, people, people did do that. So people sort of thought, oh, well, teaching is going to be a lifelong career and I'll do that. But I think young people nowadays actually don't think like that. I mean, uh, you know, you're, you're a young person, you know, but I, I think young people now are more likely to have portfolio careers and do different things. I don't know if that's the right term, but I think they want they want to do different things with, within their working lives, really, rather than just do the same thing. Yeah. Although, obviously, if you choose to do the same, if you choose to be a teacher for 40 years, that's brilliant. Yeah, and I mean, just want to touch on that. Thanks for calling me out at 29. I'll take oh, that. Why have you <laughs> said that to him? Why are you calling me <laughs> young? <laughs> That is very young. <laughs> I'll take that. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Um, you, Sam touched on about recently you've been down to, to Downing Street and, and advising the government on sort of well-being and particularly, I'm assuming, mental well-being. Just wondered if you could sort of elaborate a bit more on, on maybe what you were doing down there and, and sort of what area you were kind of advising on to teach Yeah, yeah. Advice. So I've done a couple of things, really. So the first thing that I did um, a couple of years ago was that I, I was invited to an Ofsted roundtable event to to advise Ofsted um, about their new inspection framework in schools and for teacher training as well. So they were developing a new Ofsted framework for schools, which obviously was published last year, 2019. And that what they wanted to know at the time was whether to make mental health a much greater focus in the new in the in the new inspection framework. And of course, you know, we all said there was lots of people, me from education, psychologists, psychiatrists, etc. And we all said absolutely mental health has to be a bigger focus um, in the new Ofsted framework um, because obviously without without mental health if children aren't mentally healthy they won't succeed academically um, so for me the two things are connected you know they're not separate things so if children are mentally healthy they're more likely to thrive academically but that's not just the reason to do it it's the right thing to do anyway isn't it to support yeah. children's mental health so yeah, so I was really pleased when the Ofsted framework was published and um, under, the, under the section personal development now, children have to be taught a mental health curriculum. So it's actually in there. I actually wanted it under the leadership category um, as well as under personal development because for me, mental health is about leadership and, and strategy within schools. So it's about the leaders being absolutely committed to mental health and really prioritising it and making sure it's part of the strategic plan and part of the school improvement plan so yeah so i'm i'm disappointed that it wasn't in the leadership category but actually at least it's in there so then the the meeting with downing street so that was that's all about advising the government on the 16 to 24 year old age group because that's the age group now the government are really concerned about in terms of mental health so we know for example adolescence is a tricky time for lots of young people we know that during adolescence, um, young people go through multiple transitions. We know that obviously they're adapting to um, new ways of learning. So they're transitioning into further education, higher education. Some of them are transitioning into employment. Um, they're transitioning into independent living. They're transitioning into, into relationships. They're experiencing identity transitions. So there's lots of there's lots of transitions going on. And you know, we know we know that mental health is on the increase, poor mental health is on the increase for, for that particular age group. So that was actually 
to advise the government on strategy for, for the 16 to 24 year old age group. And I think it's like I say, it's so important for that age group, particularly with what's going on and the amount of pressures that are sort of surrounding people of that age now, not just recently, but previously as well. You said about the Ofsted framework, touching on mental health being included in the curriculum. Like I say, do you, do you feel that if that was maybe in the leadership area as well, that going forward, that would have a real positive impact on by the time they're, they're at the age of 16 to 24 in 10 years time, for example, that would really start to have a positive sort of impact on people's mental health and for children or for adolescents? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, the reason I wanted it in the leadership section of the framework is because for me, it's about a whole school approach to mental health which is very strategic it's not just about the curriculum the curriculum is part of it it's one element of the whole school approach so children need obviously children need to know about mental health it starts with children in the early years learning about feelings learning about how to name feelings learning about how to regulate their feelings and emotions so that's where it starts but then eventually then children need to learn about the language of mental health they need to learn about how to look after their mental health as well as their physical health. They need to learn about the relationship between physical health and mental health. They need to learn strategies for managing their mental health, etc. So that's how it progresses. So yeah, children need a curriculum, but the curriculum is only part of the whole school approach. So actually there has to be robust systems in the school for identifying children with, with poor mental health. And, and those systems need to go beyond just identifying children that demonstrate visible signs of poor mental health. So, you know, we all know that visible signs could be, you know, if children suddenly appear to be withdrawn or tired or, you know, disengaged, if if their progress starts to decline, etc. These can all be visible signs of poor mental health. But we know that with mental health, it's not just about visible signs. Some children could be actually experiencing poor mental health, but could be a appear to be functioning as though they're absolutely fine so the systems in school need to be robust enough to actually catch those children otherwise children will fall through the cracks really so it's about identification um it's about working in partnership with parents because actually you know we know that um there's a possibility that if children have poor mental health parents may also have poor mental health um and parents also need strategies to manage the mental health of their their children at home so it's about that. It's about working in partnership with students and pupils and children and, you know, finding ways forward for them. So it's about a whole school approach. And it's also about positive school cultures in which children and staff can thrive and experience a sense of belonging. So for me, it's a whole school approach. And that's why I think it should be part of the leadership. And when policies are introduced, I think they should be introduced through the lens of me- mental health and well-being. So, you know, if... For example, if the school's introducing a behaviour policy, what impact will that policy have on children's mental health? Yeah, it's so, a, real, a real collaborative effort then to kind of change you know, attitudes and cultures towards how mental health really is perceived in education and yeah. say how, it can, how it can really be addressed rather than just people that, like you say, are visibly affected by it, the people that maybe aren't showing the signs, that they mm-hmm. kind of know how to approach it and people around them can recognise that without there actually being any signs. So like I say, I think it is, it is definitely a cultural um, shift yeah. that, we need, that we need to have in schools to uh, Yeah, absolutely. Change. Um, and, and when I did research with young people in Cambridge a couple of years ago, and I said to them, you know, if you had a mental health problem, would you, would you talk to your teachers? 
And they said, absolutely not. <laughs> they said, we don't trust our teachers because they'll have to refer it on to someone. They said, I said, would you talk to your parents? And they said, absolutely not. I said, well, who would you talk to? And they said, a friend. Mm. So therefore, you know, this is about things like peer mentoring, training up peer mentors in schools to be good peer listeners and mental health ambassadors and mental health advisors, because actually children tend to prefer to be supported by, you know, their peers rather than adults. So actually, if um, other young people can spot the signs and know how to support, you know, their peers, then I think that's really powerful. I think just following on from like the points that you, you and Matt have, uh, have made, within your book, uh, Supporting Student Health Within Higher Education, there was a stat that said from 2006 to 2016, there was a 12% increase of uh, first year students who were suffering from mental health and also as well adults who were suffering from mental health three quarters of these adults stated that they were suffering from mental uh, health issues before the age of 25 now obviously that, that's, a, that's a big range of um of age from, from 25 and, and below but how much of a contribution do you feel like that the education system actually has on young people's mental health and how much does it impact them especially because you talked about the transitions into higher education do you think that the education system prepares them enough for those transitions in their life and these difficulties and issues that they might they might face like with relationships and, and things like that yeah good question sam so Hi. one of one of the issues i think is that the education system um children go through young people go through a schooling system that is very very structured and very didactic um mm -hmm. and they get you know they get told how to pass exams you know they get trained in exam techniques etc and then they come into higher education and it's it's a significant shock so it's a completely new way of learning it's a new way of teaching it's a new way of assessment and they struggle often with that transition um, into higher education because it's you know they're expected to be more more autonomous you know they're expected to work in teams etc and and they're probably not used to doing that so I think the education system doesn't help children to prepare for what is coming next for the next phase of education and also the exam stress that children are under in school actually is you know it's a, it's a massive problem you know we know that that causes anxiety in young people and also the curriculum narrowing that we've seen particularly in primary schools over the last you know 15 years we've seen this squeezing of the curriculum so that everything then in primary schools has become about maths and english mm, yeah and you know children have done very little art they've done very little dt they've done very little history they've done very little music and we know that that, that restriction of the curriculum that that curriculum narrowing has a massive effect on their, their mental health. Because for example, you know, you imagine if you're not good at maths and English, and then you don't get the chance to do anything else, then you think you're a failure because actually the curriculum is all about maths and English. And the only thing that is measured and assessed is maths and English, particularly in primary school. So therefore, you know, you might be fantastic at art, you might be fantastic at music, but where is that being promoted and nurtured within within the curriculum and where is that being assessed and recognized that you're good at those things so you know i'm pleased that ofsted have recognized that this is a problem and they're now saying we need to go back to a broad and a balanced curriculum in primary education because you know it's been a problem for years but they've actually caused this problem i have to say that ofsted have created this problem because because of the relentless focus on judging schools 
by their their, their source, their, their test results in maths and English. And I think on that note as well, I think it's quite quite interesting that we're talking about obviously like students' uh, well-being as well. Like, how much of an impact does this Ofsted's pressures that they put on teachers through like this focus on results, testing, exams? How much pressure is actually put on teachers then essentially within education and what impact is that having on their own well-being uh, as well as their pupils? Well, yeah, I think we need to go back a stage and think what impact does it have on head teachers because head teachers are under pressure to raise standards and raise results um, in those subjects. And then that pressure then is then passed down onto teachers. So they feel pressurised to raise results and that pressure is then passed down onto children. So, you know, it's just cascading that, that pressure and um, it has a massive impact um, on teacher wellbeing because if you're working with a class of children, you know, who might be making fantastic progress but are coming in with very low starting points, so they might have communication difficulties, special education needs, all sorts of problems, then, you know, they might not achieve in line with, with national expected attainment. So their attainment might be quite, might not be in line with national expectations, with age-related expectations, but they may have made fantastic progress. So what we need to be doing is looking at the progress children are making from their starting points, um, rather than this obsessive, kind of focus on children achieving age-related expectations. Because if children are coming in with very low starting points, you know, they might not achieve those age-related expectations within the time the government want them to achieve them. So I think that's, it's, it's a pressure for teachers working in particular types of schools. So for example, you know, schools in, in areas of social deprivation, um, schools in areas where there's, there's a lot of poverty and, you know, parental mental health and you know I don't want to stereotype communities but you know schools where there's lots of other issues going on so drug abuse alcohol abuse domestic violence etc where where maybe the parents don't have the capacity to actually support their children I think you know I'm not saying the children in those communities cannot achieve yeah yeah and and actually we should be as educators pushing them to achieve as as much as they are capable of and to exceed those expectations but actually some children will be coming in with very very low starting points and they will have complex needs complex special educational needs and you know this pressure to get children to achieve at age related expectations is a massive pressure for teachers and what this has done over the last sort of 15 years is this has created in some schools very toxic workplace cultures where teachers are measured against pupil results and they're told that they're underperforming and then they've been you know basically been managed out of the profession because maybe not you know maybe they haven't achieved the results with their classes that that, that the leaders wanted them to achieve and this is you know this has been really really challenging I think for some schools um, and some teachers. I think it's it's fascinating that that you've uh, raised these issues about certain areas and backgrounds and like having this focus on this age-related standard that that children should be achieving when we're not actually considering their personal personal circumstances and backgrounds like there's a lot of countries away from England like we can even look at Northern Ireland where they do consider children's personal background and they look at the reason why for example if they're not uh, achieving the attainment level meant to be okay what's going on in their background for me like I can't understand why children's well-being and their circumstances and their background isn't taken into consideration because you're saying as well that children are starting at a low point and never to be unfortunate that that is going to be the case but surely there has to be something done with the education system to support children 
from that environment, from, from that background and not just have them as a number because you're already giving them, you're not giving them the same platform as, mm. as other children. It's, it's not fair. It's not, it's not equal. Yeah, but if you look at other countries, like say for example, um, Scandinavian countries, like look look at look at places like Denmark and Finland, where there's a much bigger focus on like play based learning up until the age of seven or eight. Whereas in our, you know, the, the, one of the problems with, with with the UK education system, well, England particularly, is that children do the reception year well they do the early years foundation stage and then there's suddenly at the age of five there's a jump into the national curriculum which becomes much more formal um, the curriculum becomes more restricted suddenly children are expected to focus on the academic um, side of learning rather than the social side of learning and the play-based aspects of learning and I think that transition from the early years to key stage one is particularly problematic for some children because some children aren't ready to make that transition particularly children who have got underdeveloped language and communication skills, those children need longer um, within play-based environments because they haven't, they haven't got the communication skills. They, you know, they, 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 if they haven't achieved the early learning goals by the end of the foundation stage, then they need to continue that play-based pedagogy to enable them to achieve you know, those, those early learning goals rather than just transitioning them onto national curriculum. It's too soon, it's too abrupt for some children. And, you know, what we find is that countries that have much more of a play-based, child-centred approach to learning in the early years, actually their children do better when they get to 15. They, they exceed, you know, children in the UK, they far exceed, you know, where they are. It's difficult making comparisons because, it's not like for like, so in some countries, they don't have children with special educational needs um, within, you know, within mainstream classrooms. So it's not, you know, it's not an automatic comparison. But yeah, I think, I think a much bigger focus on child-centred learning, play-based learning, and just exploratory learning and social learning would actually have long-term positive impacts on children rather than just this abrupt focus onto the national curriculum when they get to year one and this sudden restriction in the curriculum. You know, for example, why do we assess children in the earliest foundation stage against all those different areas of learning? So personal, social, emotional development, language and communication. You know, we, we assess them against a broad range of areas and then suddenly we move them into national curriculum and we stop assessing them in a broad way and we just focus on maths and English. And I think that's detrimental to children's well-being. But also it's problematic because it's not just about social deprivation. It's all, I mean, there are some children from very affluent backgrounds who have poor mental health. So poor mental health isn't just about poverty and social deprivation. You know, if you're from a very affluent background, then your parents actually might be placing pressure on you um, to succeed academically, which can be detrimental, but you might also be placing pressure on yourselves. So I went into an independent school and they said to me that the biggest issue wasn't the parents, the biggest issue was that the, the, the children, the students were placing pressure on themselves to achieve academic, you know, so, yeah, I think it's, it's complex. I completely agree. And I think, like I say, it's about changing, changing that sort of approach from a test-based test performance results sort of focus to, a, to almost a developmental focus and sort of managing the process of, of children's development and, and student development rather than the end result. Because like you say, then you can take into account certain factors and, and different situations and you can still see that, well, they haven't maybe reached that grade at the end, but they've, they've still developed in that period of time yeah. compared to where they were. 
I think also I've always questioned why do we place this focus on exams in schools? There's such a great focus on exams, but then when children move into higher education, like for example, I haven't done an exam since I did my A-levels. So often, you know, people moving, I mean, I know some, depending on the course you do, there might, there might be exams, but often people move into higher education and there's a much broader way of assessing students, yeah. so, you know, through group work presentations, etc. you know, making products, all sorts of different modes of, of assessment, which I think is much more inclusive. So I just think that this focus on exams is the wrong focus because actually that doesn't prepare students for what is coming next. And also, let's be honest, I mean, you know, you learn everything for an exam and then you forget it. You forget most of it, don't you? So I can't remember. So I did A-level chemistry. I can't remember any of it Yeah, because I've never used it since. <laughs> I think, and like say universities, well, particularly the course that we've had, we've sort of been taught to be assessed on a variety of ways, you know, sway presentations, group presentations, obviously assignments as well. And it is about sort of, I guess, reaching out to everyone's different preferred way of, of developing. And it's just ironic, like you say, that, that we teach kids throughout their school life to, to focus on one exam or two exams. And then you get to higher education and it's a completely different assessment process for some, some courses. So I think you're absolutely right. It's just, you know, doing it in a way where people can sort of retain the information that they've learned and then use it moving forward. Yeah, and I think it's also important that, you know, education shouldn't be just about cramming children with knowledge. Yeah. You know, the facts that they can regurgitate. It should be about transforming attitudes and values. Yeah. For me, this is what education is about. It's about actually shaping attitudes and values so that they can move forward and be good citizens, really, yeah. and and can demonstrate values of inclusion and social justice. So, you know, there's there's no point, really, in in just instilling facts and knowledge, you know, Ofsted talk about powerful knowledge. That's the buzzword at the moment, you know, this powerful yeah. knowledge that will, that will provide children with cultural capital to succeed in life. Yeah, that's fine. But actually children need to be good people. You know, yeah. you, they need to be good people and good citizens who, who, who actually will challenge prejudice and discrimination and actually be good, you know, good people. Um, people. And, and also... Be able to be able to work with, you know, be able to respect diversity and celebrate diversity and see it as a positive. For me, that's what education should be about. It should be about challenging prejudice and discrimination so that we can have a much better, fairer, equitable society in the future. Yeah, I completely agree. And tune back in next week for part two of our interview with Professor Jonathan Glazard. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, follow us on Instagram on at the teacher tomorrow or on Twitter at TFT Pod. Thanks for listening, guys.